it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade here. So glad you're here. Uh, it's an exciting day because the president of Poland is going to be here, President Duda. Uh, he's making his way up to our uh, our level on the 15th floor uh, at 1211 Sixth Avenue. New York City is full with VIPs this week. Very important people, as well as leaders of state. Uh, yesterday, I had a chance to talk to Jan Stoltenberg, who is the general secretary of NATO. You'll see that and hear that interview here and also watch it Saturday night on One Nation. So I appreciate that. Um, and we'll be able to take some calls in the next break as we wait for the president of Poland to join us. Now, why is it? It's always great to talk to the president of a of a of a country that is now a, a key member of NATO, who is a, a great friend of the U.S., who fight like warriors in every war we're in, right by our side. Who now spend four percent of their GDP on defense. The only member of NATO to spend more than us. And have done taken a million refugees in from Ukraine once this war started and immediately gave them uh, gave them MIGs to fight that war. So you, they understand the dangers of Vladimir Putin, much as they understood Stalin, much as they stood Hitler. If you talk to Zelensky, he believes uh, he believes that Zelensky that this is Hitler, too. Uh, in Vladimir Putin, and I wouldn't doubt it. The only thing I could hope for is continued deterioration of health, which seems kind of obvious. Uh, today is also going to be uh, very impactful for Republicans on the House. They're finally going to get a chance to talk to the Attorney General of the United States. So the Attorney General, uh, uh, Merrick Garland, will go in front and try to defend himself on his pick of David Weiss, on the whistleblowers that have come forward and said that David Weiss told them he did not have the freedom to do what he wanted, told them he was rejected to bring this case to Los Angeles or D.C., and then was a, suddenly got special prosecutor status and could go after Hunter. And now the deal that they had done under his supervision got rejected, and now they're actually prosecuting him. He pled not guilty yesterday. So we'll have a chance to hear from Merrick Garland today. I'm sure we're not going to have, yeah, I was wrong. I'm sure that's not going to come up. But I do want to hear his answers and see his body language as he's confronted uh, with some of the questions that Republicans have had. And that is, number one, why did you pick Jack Smith as prosecutor for Donald Trump? Why did you pick Robert Hur on the other side? Well, Jack Smith has blown up cases against Senator Menendez, blown up cases against John Edwards, blown up cases against uh, Bob McDonald, the governor of Virginia. Then you pick him to come out and, and aggressively go after Trump on January 6th, as well as the documents. Does that make any sense? Does that sound vital? At the very least, I want to see his body language when he's asked that question. Here's James Comer on a preview of why it's important for him to be there because of what he's already found out about the president and his family, cut one. We found the shell companies. We subpoenaed the bank records of those shell companies. We found wires from five different countries, from China to Romania to Ukraine to Russia to uh, Uzbekistan. Uh, to the shell companies that were then dispersed to nine different Biden family members. Now we've 
taken the two leading Biden family members who received the most disbursements from this laundered money from foreign nationals, and that would be Hunter Biden and Jim Biden, and we are now subpoenaing their bank records. So we're following the money. Once we get those bank records and review those bank records, we will continue to follow the money. If that leads to Joe Biden or to Hunter Biden or to Jim Biden, then we will bring them in and subpoena them. And the word is, uh, I know who they're going to go with next. Uh, the word is that James Comer is is got already got his guys lined up who he wants to speak to next. Uh, and we'll hopefully we'll get that this week. They're going to subpoena the bank records of Hunter Biden and James Biden. We know that. And I hope the records will provide insight. We understand that. But who is actually going to be in front? They're going to look for Eric Sherwin to come in and they're going to look to subpoena. Uh, they're going to look to speed uh, Hunter Biden at some point. And at that point, I'm sure uh, they'll look at he'd read his book, look at some of his interviews and see where the vulnerabilities are uh, and decide which ones he can just flat out say, I was on drugs. What can I tell you? I don't think so. When you're sitting on that board, when you're doing these meetings in Romania and Moscow and with Chinese officials, um, if you're on drugs, they were very bad drugs because you seem kind of lucid, but cavalier. And that's the issue. So we know over the last 48 hours, we cut a deal with Iran that was culminated with them getting $6 billion of their funds back from South Korea that were frozen of oil purchases. They got their guys back, and they said they could do whatever they want with the funds. We say they can't. It's got to be for humanitarian purposes. But when you look at what Iran said uh, when they were at the U.N. yesterday, you realize the principle still stands. You cannot show kindness and understanding or acquiesce at all with your enemies who are pure evil. I put China in that category, and Iran is head of the class. After doing this deal and trying to get this, get back in a nuclear deal with Iran, you would think they would back off their crazy rhetoric at the General Assembly. They didn't. Here's Iran's President Raisi, cut 20. It is time now for the United States to bring a cessation to her traveling on the wrong path and choose the right side. Ladies and gentlemen, humanity is entering a new framework. Old powers will keep their current downward trajectory. They are the past and we are the future. I repeat once again, they represent the past and we represent the future. Yeah, in your small mind, as you shoot your people for not having wearing their hijabs correctly, as you get rid of anybody that speaks up, as you jail innocent people because you know you can get hostage money for them and a ransom. More from this evil leader, Cut 21. Leaving the JCPOA showed an official trampling upon their commitments by that government. It was an inappropriate response to our fulfillment of commitments within that framework by having broken the agreement uh, in within the framework of Resolution 2231 passed by the UN Security Council, it has committed egregious and unilateral crime in the international arena. So why do we try to be nice to these people? Why are we trying to talk to these people? There is no talking to them. That regime needs to be isolated. I don't understand why President Obama brought them back Trump sidelined them, and this president brings them back only to embarrass us on the world stage. Not that anyone's paying attention on Tuesday afternoon, but just so you know, that's what you get. That's what you get. 
They're not even saying it behind our back in these uh, small circles. This is what they're saying publicly. I'll come back and take a time out. I do want to talk about the collapse and the shutdown that took place that could be taking place in a couple of weeks. So yesterday, the Republicans put together over the weekend a, a series of uh, measures that would have additional border security and defense spending and a CR to get us get the government funded until October 31st until they could finish their appropriations bills. And guess who blew it up? Five Republicans. They are just clowns. Republicans like Scott Perry, conservative as it come, Chip Roy, as conservative as it come, um, uh, Mike Gallagher, as conservative as it comes, uh, Mike Johnson, as conservative as it comes. They work this with leadership, only get blown up by five selfish people. I'm going to give you the details, but Republicans are going to end up watching as moderate Republicans do a deal now with Hakeem Jeffries and Democrats. Why is that okay? Brian Kilmeade. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. President Biden is coming to the city. I am hoping that he understands this beautiful city that's the economic engine of the entire country is being saddled with a $2 billion that we spent already, $5 billion we're going to spend in this fiscal crisis, $12 billion um, in the next um, two budgetary cycles. Uh, New York don't don't deserve this. The asylum seekers don't deserve this. And so while he's here, um, I think that they should really reflect on New York City has done its part. And um, we're once we know what I'm going to do, we release a public schedule. I'm very public. Everybody knows who I am. He's trying hard not to criticize the president. But why even pull back? I mean, after all, you asked every single Uh, government body, every single division to cut back 15 percent. You said in two budget cycles it's going to cost the taxpayer of New York City $12 billion. And you could point to one policy that allowed that, the breakdown, Title 42, the lack of putting up a wall, the lack of border security, uh, the inability to pressure the Central and South American nations to stop letting illegal immigrants migrate through their country. Now we got trains in Mexico coming our way. If we did not show that video, Mexico wouldn't have stopped those temporary those trains temporarily. This is all because not the governor of Texas. This is because of the president's policies. He won't meet the governor. He won't meet the mayor. But for somebody on the border, hearing the complaints does not get a sympathetic ear. I'm talking about Tony Gonzalez. But he's reacting now to President Biden completely ignoring the migrant crisis. How does he get away with this? Will the voters hold him accountable? Cut 31. 
Everything this border crisis touches turns to ash, whether it's in Eagle Pass, whether it's in El Paso, whether it's in New York City, Chicago, L.A., it does not matter. Uh, small towns, big cities, all of it turns to ash. And we know what the problem is. We've got to put down our political pins and we've got to come together because America depends on it. it. Congress needs to fix this. The president needs to fix this. But enough with the blame game. Now it's time for solutions. It's yeah. all fun and games until the crisis hits your city. No amount of money can, can get us out of this. It's pretty easy to solve. What you have to do is stop playing the blame game. You've got to enforce the laws that are already on the books. So he's repeating himself, but Congressman Tony Gonzalez is also one of these reasonable, and it, get, it drives some Republicans crazy. They try to primary him. Reasonable Republicans who says, yeah, I'm conservative, but I, I don't have all the power, so I'm looking to compromise. When it comes to the border, he's not looking to compromise. He's looking to shut it down. Migrants encountered Sunday alone, just Sunday, on the U.S. border. The Rio Grande Valley, 1,800. Del Rio, 1,600. Tucson, Arizona, 1,500. El Paso, 1,000. Uh, compare the stats of the U.S. border encounters uh, on Sunday, 7,500, 4,300 for the month of July. So that's why they end up with a state of emergency in Massachusetts. That's why they have them overrunning police stations and now in 10 cities in Chicago. That's why they have in Philadelphia adding to the homeless crisis that they have. Now you have a Mexican train with hundreds of migrants on board headed for the Pedras Nagras, Mexico, across right from Eagle Pass, Texas. So it's right on the border. They started 150 miles away. It would have been a long walk. Oftentimes they can be dispersed. Not on these rail trains. And these are cold trains. I mean, you're not indoors sitting there in luxury. You are literally sitting in the back of a coal truck. Uh, a coal uh, train passenger, there's no seats, and you just hope to get to the U.S. Now, I know some people want to use them as legal immigrants to work, including Republicans. They got to get day passes, work visas, or seasonal passes. There's ways to do this. People just say, yeah, I want to go help these people out on the farm, and the farmers say, I need people to help me out of my farm. There's ways to do it. This is not the way. And I'm just stunned this administration feels an urgency to deal with it. This is the abortion issue of 2024. Here's to, uh, Tom Tillis, cut 32. We've got to stop the illegal flow, flow of immigrants across the, uh, the southern border. It's gotten, it, it has gotten worse and worse. The uh, cartels play in this administration like a piano. They advertise in foreign countries that they can get you to the United States. They pay a fee to the cartels to the tune of almost a billion dollars a year, over $800 million, their most profitable line of business. And they're getting people across the border. Do you know anyone who says it's no big deal? Anybody? Nobody. AOC tries to have a press conference and say, we just got to let these people work, and they get shouted down. Democratic mayor outraged, the Democratic governor outraged, the Democratic governor of Massachusetts incensed. Now they talk about no one speaking out against Biden, but the mayor of Chicago says uh, we got to get these people out of police stations and airports. We've got to get them into 10 cities, a 10 city in the Chicago's winter. Good luck with that. So let's switch. Talk about folly and ridiculous and embarrassing. So this thing called continuing resolution allows the government to be funded while negotiations begin because the government will be shutting down in five days, six days. Republicans are control of the House. So you just got to pass the appropriations bills. You just got to just do it. You pass it and you go through. And then it goes to the Senate and they say, I hate what the House gave me. And the House goes, I hate what the Senate gave me. You negotiate it. And you keep the government open. At least if they don't, you could say, well, it's the Senate's fault. 
You can't say that now because even though they put together a CR that will require additional border funding and homeland security funding as well as uh, as well as defense spending, Ralph Norman says no go. Andy Biggs, Congressman Dan Bishop, Ken Buck, and uh, the despicable Matt Rosendale says I'm not going to do this. I don't want to do it because I'm here to cut spending. You are cutting spending, not as much as you want because you only have a four-seat majority. The final vote was 214 to 212 against the vote to allow the military spending measure to proceed. Against the vote, they didn't bring it forth to put together a CR to get even get it to the Senate because they didn't have the vote. So they're trying to get rid of Kevin McCarthy as if Kevin McCarthy's a problem. You, you blew up Boehner. He hated it. You blew up Ryan. He's gone. Denny Astor's immersed in scandal. When he got voted down, he did something Nancy Pelosi could have left, could have done, and that's just left. But now you have a situation where if conservative Republicans write a conservative CR and conservative Republicans say it's not conservative enough. Tell that to Chip Roy and Congressman Perry. I don't get it. I don't get why you go up there. And say, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to hold my breath until I get my way. That's not the way you're supposed to govern. You try to go in there instead of saying, I got everything I want. I got a lot what I want. Then you come back and then you say, we get more of a majority next year. And I got a Republican Senate to work with. Let's go back to that proposal I brought up. Will you get a promise? Whatever it takes. But you have people that just don't care if the government shuts down. Matt Gates weighed in last night. Cut 29. So my plan is not to lump every disparate agency of government into one vote on a continuing resolution, but instead to only review these things separately and independently. That is the serious way to go about this work. Chip is right. We will have a shutdown. But I don't believe that an 8 percent 30-day cut would have yielded the programmatic reforms that would create any long-term savings. The only well, way me, to do Matt, that let me ask is open you amendments, individual bills, no more continuing resolutions. Are omnibus. Why? You're not done. In October 31st, if you don't get the appropriations done in another six weeks, you could say, I don't want to do an omnibus. I'd have much more understanding. But you're asking your own speaker to do appropriations bills. You guys should have been working in July and August. And now you have moderates who are just saying, you know what? I'm going to team with some Democrats. There's only a four seat difference, and I'll be the difference. We'll put together a plan to continue to fund the government because I don't want to shut down the government. It makes us look terrible globally, by the way. Such a move would keep McCarthy's fingerprints off whatever bill it is and stop people from Chip Roy and Mike Johnson from having any role in any CR. Because you don't get everything you want, it's not worth it to you, I guess. Why are you even there? You're there. If you become president of the United States, you still have to compromise. Secretary of State, you still have to compromise. That's the way our government's set up. Don't tell me you're jealous of President Xi and Vladimir Putin. I don't want to hear it. You're one congressman. I'm going to just, in Montana, they're going to leave me there so I can do whatever I want. I'm not in danger in Colorado. Or Ken Buck comes out and says, yeah, I want to join CNN. You believe this? When we come back, President Andre Duda, President of the Republic of Poland, in studio. It's going to be great. Don't miss it. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everyone. It's my privilege to have in studio the president of Poland, Andrzej Duda, president of the Republic of Poland, really since 2014. 
And he's done a, a remarkable job and stepped up big time when this Ukraine war started. His country has taken in about a million Ukrainians. Mr. President, welcome to the show. Bardzo serdecznie witam pana redaktora i witam także wszystkich naszych słuchaczy i widzów. How has Poland been able to absorb the million Ukrainians? And what has been the greatest challenge for your country as after Russia's invasion? That was a reflex of our hearts. Uh, nobody really had to encourage Poles, my compatriots, uh, to welcome refugees from Ukraine into their homes. We call them guests in Poland. When uh, Russia attacked Ukraine, uh, launching a full-scale attack, as we put it, on the 24th of February 2022, well, indeed, a huge flood of refugees uh, started to move towards the Polish border. We opened up our border immediately, trying to let as many people get through as possible, try to make it available for uh, the biggest possible number of people to flee from the areas which Russia was attacking. Because right from the start in that war, Russia has been brutally attacking civilian neighborhoods. It's not only military targets. Right from the start, they carried out brutal missile uh, raids of big neighborhoods in big Ukrainian cities in Kharkiv, in Kiev, and in other places. Also close to the Polish border in Lviv, in Lutsk. So there were a lot of such attacks, and people were fleeing just like that. Indeed, they were welcomed in Polish homes. And uh, just anonymous uh, people whom they had never known took them. Uh, Poles went to the border, took those people home. They invited them and supported them. That was just a reflex of the heart, so to say. We know simply what it means that somebody is suffering when somebody was attacked, especially by Russians. Unfortunately, this is a part of our history, a big part of our history. And this um, opening of the hearts was just immediate. It was just a reflex of the heart. It was pretty amazing to see. You were also the first nation to give the Ukrainians fighter jets. Uh, and they need more fighter jets, don't they? Yes, uh, we have uh, transferred to Ukraine uh, big um, size, big parts of armaments as the first ones. The biggest uh, assistance, of course, is coming from the United States and being neighbors uh, to Ukraine. We are very much grateful for that to the U.S. authorities for that help, for that support to Ukraine. Without this support, Ukraine would not survive, and there is no doubt about that. They wouldn't be able to defend themselves. It is not only about uh, the bravery of Ukrainian soldiers, which is wonderful, but it is also a matter of having things to fight with, equipment to fight with. So right from the start, we were also sending uh, armaments to Ukraine, the one which uh, Ukrainian soldiers were able to use right away. That was important at the, uh, at the outset. They had no experience whatsoever with uh, Western American military equipment or German equipment or French equipment. But uh, they were very good at uh, using uh, Soviet-era Russian equipment. That is why we sent right away MiG-29 jets. Uh, we put them at the disposal of Ukraine. Ukrainian um, soldiers, and they had pilots who were able to fly those planes right away. We sent more than 300 tanks to Ukraine. Mainly, these were uh, the post-Soviet era tanks, but we modernized them in Poland, and uh, they had uh, strengthened armors. Uh, also, communication systems were high-quality ones. Uh, they were well-equipped and uh, ready to fight. We sent more than 300 such tanks, plus also Leopard tanks later on, uh, produced by Germany. We even organized wow. a, a tank coalition, or an armor coalition, as we called it. We also uh, talked to everybody and convinced everyone, 
upon the request of Ukraine to send modern tanks to Ukraine, the tanks which uh, were uh, tanks of the 21st century. And indeed, we were implementing that help all the time. So we belong, we're among the three states who actually gave the biggest military assistance to Ukraine. That is, and that was a huge effort to us, but we are doing that also in order to strengthen Polish security, because we know that Russian imperialism has to be stopped. To us, this is of key importance to make sure that Ukraine can defend itself so that Russians are not able to conquer Ukraine, so that they do not defeat Ukraine. Ukraine has to defend itself, and I make an appeal to everyone to support Ukraine, because the primacy of international law has to be reinstated. And in order for that to happen, Russian troops have to be driven out from the Ukrainian lands. Ukraine has to recover control of its internationally recognized borders. So we've given $70 billion, but everything we give seems late. HIMARS, late. Patriot, late. F-15 trainings, late. Uh, The cluster bombs, late. The Javelin missiles, late. The tanks, 31, not one has arrived. How hard has it been on the Ukrainians? Because it seems like we are always late. First and foremost, uh, assistance is needed, and it's positive that the assistance is being given. I'm always saying, well, we need to appreciate that, because without the military support, especially with modern equipment, Ukraine would not be able to defend itself. The problem that Ukrainians are facing is not only the so-called military techniques or technology, simply said weapons. There is also another thing. Russia simply is... The Russians are much more numerous than Ukrainians. Vladimir Putin uh, does not care for the life of his soldiers. He sends thousands of soldiers to die, as a matter of fact, in many cases. Russians are suffering huge losses, but he's sending uh, soldiers coming from the far east of Russia. Uh, these are not soldiers uh, from Moscow. Uh, they are not reservists uh, or conscripts from St. Petersburg, from big cities where there are influential elites, where there could be a rebellion on the part of the society, where the world would be able to see uh, mothers of fallen soldiers protesting. He is uh, taking soldiers from uh, far away areas of Russia, non-Russians. They are coming from many different nations, nations uh, who live in Russia, and those soldiers uh, are being killed en masse simply. But they are actually outnumbering Ukrainians with a sheer number. This is the difference between 40 million Ukrainians and 140 million Russians. We are late on this. And it may it makes it harder in America for us to support the war when we're late on getting the stuff they need, yet the numbers are high in terms of what we already given. Have you expressed that to President Biden that you know they need F fifteens, they need more tanks, thirty one is not enough? Yesterday, I said to President Biden, because we had an opportunity to see each other during a reception um, given here at New York by uh, Mr. President on the occasion of the UN General Assembly, uh, traditionally, I said, I I ask very much to provide further support to Ukraine to supply armaments to Ukraine, because that is of key importance to stop Russian imperialism, to avoid a huge war, because I am convinced that if Russian imperialism is not stopped, then Russia, sooner or later, with its actions will lead to a great war. And then, unfortunately, as we have seen in history, from the history of the First World War and the Second World War, in order to bring about peace in Europe somehow, the United States, again, will have to get involved by deploying its soldiers. That is why I urge and I make an appeal to help Ukraine right now so that Ukraine is able to defend itself before this 
conflict spills over. Today, we can cut off Russian imperialism simply by forcing Russians to withdraw, and by doing that, by punishing the imperialist ambitions, which Vladimir Putin is demonstrating. This is a huge opportunity today to keep the peace in the world, and I appeal to everyone. I also asked President Biden to do the same, to use this opportunity. This opportunity is being used precisely through supporting Ukraine. We are starting sending armaments to Ukraine. We are helping Ukrainians to defend their homeland. So you, I understand, are spending even more on your defense than any other nation in NATO per, per capita for your GDP. Not only are you doing 2%, you're going to get up to 4%. Why do the Polish people and you, President Duda in particular, understand the need to hit the threshold of 2 and double it where other nations like Germany, France, Hungary, and others don't even get close to that? In fact, only nine nations are hitting their 2%. That drives that drives critics of NATO crazy. Like people like President Trump and he's got a great point, doesn't he? I was 17 years old in 1989 when the Iron Curtain was falling and when Poland was liberating itself from the darkness of communism. And simply from the Russian, from the Soviet sphere of influence, we were successful thanks to solidarity, thanks to the determination of the Polish people, but also thanks to huge support from the United States. And we will always be grateful uh, to President Ronald Reagan. We will recall him with uh, great, uh, with gratefulness. But also our Pope John Paul II in my cabinet in Warsaw. I've got a picture uh, where uh, Ronald Reagan and the Pope were talking to each other. There were two huge leaders, were leaders, and together with Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, they brought uh, the fall of the Iron Curtain. And thanks to that, we managed to liberate ourselves without a fight, without bloodshed in a democratic way, through protests, through elections. That was a great, great success. But we understand full well in Poland what Russian occupation is, what Russian sphere of influence stands for. And today, when Russia again has revived its imperial ambitions, when it wants to govern to subjugate itself other nations, which it demonstrated in Georgia back in 2008, which it has been demonstrating since 2014 in Ukraine. And since last year, through full-scale aggression, by crushing civil neighborhoods, by killing people, Polish people understand full well that we have to prepare ourselves right. to show that we are strong enough. And hence, the decisions uh, to spend on defense, on strengthening Polish armed forces. Of course, we are very happy to have on our soil the U.S. soldiers, and we are really grateful for that to the United States as a state and as a member of NATO. But we know that what is of biggest importance is to make sure that we are a responsible ally, and a responsible ally is the one who cares for their own security. Uh, President Duda of Poland, I have so many questions for you, but I guess first and foremost, is this a Putin issue? Is Vladimir Putin the one who really wants to expand and get the Russian empire back? Or is this a Russian government policy and he just happens to be the president? Is Putin the problem or is Russia the problem? Of course, a huge problem is the attitude of the presidents of the Russian Federation, Vladimir Putin. He is leading the state, after all, and 
These are his political decisions. And of course, uh, of course, a circle of his collaborators as well. Uh, let us be open and frank and say the following. This policy, the imperialist policy of Russia, the policy of aggression of Russia against Ukraine uh, meets support of a huge part of the Russian society. There were no big protests in Russia against uh, Vladimir Putin's policy. Russians uh, for many years have been fed with propaganda. They are being convinced that they have the right to govern other nations, that they have the right to expand their Ruski Mir, but the nations in our part of the world, in our part of Europe, uh, had to do with a Russian aggression, with Russian influences, and they don't want to have them back. And we will defend ourselves against that because we do not want to have Ruski Mir. We have our own culture, we have our own customs, and we want to preserve these. We do not want Russia to impose its rules upon us. Like they've done before, with the Soviet Union coming on one end, Nazi Germany on the other end, and they cut Poland to pieces, and you're not going to let that happen again. I'm sure of it. Uh, a huge number of our citizens were murdered. Uh, Poles were shot down during the Second World War. That was done by Germans, by German Nazis. That was also done by Russians in cutting. They killed Polish officers, Polish intelligentsia. Several thousand Poles were murdered in a brutal way right. by the Stalin regime, by the Soviets. Hundreds of thousands were deported to faraway Siberia. We know what suffering means in right. Russian enslavement, and we never want to see that yeah. again. They're great at this capturing things, like they're taking Ukrainian kids and bringing them into Russia. Uh, they give 4% of their GDP to NATO, and they've already given uh, 3.15, um, excuse me, $3.26 billion towards this uh, fight in Ukraine and have taken in over a million Ukrainians. The president of Poland, who understands the threat, in studio. More with him in just a moment. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Mr. President, President Duda, uh, we're privileged to have the president of Poland, who's done such a remarkable job as an ally to the Americans, especially to the Ukrainians, and understand the Russian threat. Uh, Mr. President, give me your view on the counterinsurgency right now. Uh, I know you said uh, prior to this the Russians have really dug in and they're looking to protect the land they stole. Uh, and but it seems as though there seems to be breakthroughs over the last few weeks in taking back small towns. Are they getting the demonic equipment? Are they starting to see some penetration? The beginning of the offensive or the counteroffensive launched by Ukraine was very difficult. The reason for that was that, well, perhaps the Ukrainians might not have or might have underestimated the Russians, their preparations to keep the occupied areas. Russians built a very strong line of defense. They built fortifications, and first and foremost, they laid hundreds of square kilometers of minefields. And indeed, the Ukrainian army, which was launching the counteroffensive was entering those minefields and suffered huge losses. That is why a couple of months ago, I personally was asked by President Volodymyr Zelensky 
uh, that Poland sends special vehicles, uh, demining vehicles. And as a matter of fact, we were supplying such vehicles from Poland as part of our support. We were looking uh, for them all over Poland in military units in order to be able to deploy them to Ukrainian as soon as possible so that they could support the defensive activities of Ukrainians to support the counteroffensive. But in fact, Russians did a lot of work to fortify, and that was holding back to a large extent the Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive today. Um, some of those uh, minefields have been neutralized, but that is going to be a concern for tens of years after the war ends, because we know that minefields are a huge tragedy. Anti-personal mines, uh, but today, today a lot of those difficulties have been overcome. Ninety seconds left. Um, right now, people wonder how committed Western Europe is to this. There's word that India is selling Russian oil back to Western Europe. They get it at a discount. They're starting to break their own sanctions. Countries like Germany. Do you worry about countries like Germany and France, who are not giving what they pledged? Uh, you think they'll start to maybe forget about this? Well, in the first place, uh, I keep calling on helping Ukraine. The assistance to Ukraine means also very consistent implementation of the sanctions policy vis-a-vis Russia. Russia has to be stopped. The Russian imperialism is very dangerous. Today, this Russian imperialism is demonstrated through the brutal aggression against Ukraine. But if Russia is successful in Ukraine, then it will probably attack uh, other states. As many years ago, in 2008, when Russia uh, invaded Georgia, Polish President Lech Kaczynski was saying in Tbilisi, and I had an honor to cooperate uh, with him back then as a young minister in his office. He said that today it's Georgia, tomorrow perhaps it will be Ukraine, and then perhaps uh, uh, the Baltic states and perhaps even my country, Poland. He He said that. He said it in 2008, and unfortunately his words are coming true. That is why we are trying so much to support Ukraine today in our part of Europe, the presidents of the Baltic states, myself, because we are aware uh, that uh, Russia poses a real threat, that there is a Russian imperialism. Mr. President, it was a thrill to have you here, and uh, we're so glad you're an ally of ours the way you fought with us in Afghanistan, Iraq, and doing it again. Radio studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everybody. I'm just watching some of the drama. We'll come to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, where the United Nations really is just fanned out all over the city. Uh, we're, we're dealing with 85,000 illegal immigrants. we got people from literally over 150 countries here. The small parties, big parties. Like the president of FIFA is here. Uh, you have uh, delegations being uh, wined and dined and contacts made. In fact, on Saturday night, I had a chance to meet Jan Stoltenberg, who is... Uh, General Secretary of NATO, and you'll see, uh, hear that whole interview unedited here and see portions of it uh, on Saturday night on One Nation. But I'm also watching what's happening in the Capitol, where finally Attorney General um, Merrick Garland will be in front, is in front right now, and getting the opening remarks of Jim Jordan in front of the House Judiciary Committee to answer questions about why did you appoint Jack Smith? Why is that the right choice? Why is that the right choice to head up 
this investigation on Donald Trump. What is Robert Hur doing with Joe Biden? And when it comes to what's happening with Hunter Biden, a five-year investigation, totally dormant for three years until two IRS whistleblowers stood up and spoke out and talked about how compromised this investigation is. The Jew swore was on the up and up and divorced from any of your input. After all, you were appointed by the president, and that president's son was under scrutiny for tax violation, for foreign investments that we were not registered for, suspicious activities in their accounts, and, uh, and most of all, and lately, a gun charge where this crack-addicted guy, Hunter Biden, uh, had a gun, bought it and lied on the form, had his girlfriend at the time, who was his son's widow, excuse me, his brother's widow, toss it into a dumpster, fished out, we reportedly, by the Secret Service. So that is a violation of a gun charge that your dad always talks about the need for background checks. So with me right now uh, to talk about uh, what else is going on in the world with a great perspective is Ambassador uh, Dennis Ross. If you want to know what's happening in the Middle East especially, all you have to do is get his cell number and see if he has some time for you. He's with the William Davidson Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Ambassador, welcome back. Uh, really good to be with you. Uh, and as long as you have my cell number, I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I got some time, if you pick up your books, you have a thorough look at the Middle East, which has changed at a rapid pace now. Guys like you must find it fascinating. How, first off, your take from what do you think the Middle East and the world thinks about the deal, as we know it, of swapping five for five or five for six uh, hostages from the criminals that we had, the Iran who broke the law, those were taken of without any justification, and then $6 billion unfrozen from South Korea. How is that interpreted in the Middle East, do you think? Well, I think generally the way it's seen uh, is the Iranians grab people, they treat them as assets, and they get paid off for for doing so. To be fair, this is not the first administration to do it. Uh, and and also, to be fair, you're, you're looking at people who have been falsely imprisoned, who undergo, you know, just the most excruciating uh, experience you can imagine. Uh, and so at a human level, you want to get them out yep. so you can understand why it's, why we try to do everything. Administrations try to do everything to get them out. In this particular case, what has happened is they're it's kind of ironic. So this is, this is money that South Korea paid to Iran for oil that they bought from Iran uh, back in uh, during the Trump administration when there was when the Trump administration was still permitting waivers uh, to sanctions uh, to permit countries to buy oil from Iran. When the when those waivers were revoked, the money that had been uh, paid by South Korea to Iran was in accounts that then became inaccessible to the Iranians because of the sanctions. The actual amount was $7 billion. Now, because there's been a devaluation of the South Korean currency, the actual month, the amount that's been turned over to a bank in Qatar is $6 billion. The account that's been set up is an account that is will be monitored by the U.S. and can and money can be drawn from it. Understood. On a, yeah, but no one's going to be able to enforce basis. that. Well, you you may be able to enforce it. It's just that, look, we all know money is fungible, right? So, the money that is that you that you were going to have to spend yeah. for medicine and food and medical devices 
you can now use this account to be able to buy that. And you can, the money that's freed up can be used for other purposes. But yeah, look, it's what should happen, Brian. We should work out an arrangement with the Europeans to say we will not allow people to travel to Iran for any reasons. And we won't allow anybody exactly. to go for tourist reasons. This would immediately have an effect on the Iranian. These people bring in hard currency, number one. There are all sorts of Iranians, you know, millions upon millions of Iranians who live outside who actually come back and visit. It's important to their families. It's important to them. It is a source of hard currency for the regime. You really want to hit this regime on this issue, which we should be doing. You should say no travel to Iran and work out an agreement with the with the Europeans because, to the truth be told, many more of their dual citizens have been, uh, have been arrested. We actually have this extraordinary case why someone who actually is an EU official from Sweden uh, has been jailed. Unbelievable. <laughs> it is. It's unbelievable. So I had no idea know, there were that many people transiting into Iran. It's so dangerous. I, I want to bring you to what Iran said yesterday on the floor of the United Nations. In case you think this yeah. brings the two nations closer or would have a detente or a ceasefire, forget it. Listen to the Iranian president. Cut 22. To endeavor to universalize American ideals throughout the world have proven to be failures. The Iranian nation takes pride in having instrumentally unmasked the true nature of the rulers in both the East and West through its Islamic revolution. This is where we're powers of the past. It's time for them to take over with Russia, I guess North Korea and China. Yeah. Well, we know <laughs> you look at the Islamic Republic today. Uh, you know, I like to say that what its main exports are, are drones, cruise missiles and failed states. If you want to be a failed state, you know, all you need to do is allow the Iranians in or line up with the Iranians. They offer nothing. Uh, look at their own country. This is they had to arrest family members uh, of those who've been killed in the last year who were demonstrating uh, because of the killing of Masa Amini, who was a young woman, her, the anniversary of her death was four days ago. She was a young woman who was wearing a hijab. She's 22 years old, of Kurdish descent, wearing a hijab, but not wearing it appropriately for the morality police. They arrested her, beat her up, and killed her. And that triggered, uh, you know, basically it triggered demonstrations, protests, outrage in 165 cities in Iran. Uh, and in anticipation of this anniversary, her father was arrested. Uh, other family members of those who died, 500 people were killed, 20,000 were arrested. The regime was so concerned that the anniversary was going to trigger a, a new groundswell that they acted to preempt it, and their hardline press was sort of crowing about the fact that there were demonstrations, but they were small in number. Uh, the regime obviously was afraid of that. So you, you have a regime that knows its own population is completely alienated. Uh, and so here they say, yeah, they're a model. They're a model for anybody else. Does anybody really look to them? I think not. I, I think not. Uh, and by the way, we did. I just thought the, the pro policy of isolation and building of the Abraham Accords uh, and the, the relations and the recognition of Israel is something would have been hard to predict in the 1980s and 1990s and even at the turn of this century. But now it's happening. But just to take the, the overview, it looks like Saudi Arabia in talks with the U.S. in an effort to recognize Israel and have established trade in, uh, between the nations. 
They're asking for a mutual defense pact with the U.S. Should we give Saudi Arabia that? I favor it, yes, because I think we have to look at this through the following lens. One, we're in a long-term competition with China. Uh, And one of the best ways to ensure that you succeed in that is to build a very broad-based coalition. Yes, it includes the democratic countries, but it also includes other countries that are important to us in the context of that competition uh, and other countries that, in fact, if they're part of this coalition and they lean towards us, you will see that it's not only they serve our interests, but they themselves will, I think, evolve more. So it's very much in our interests. And again, put it in a, in a larger context as well. It's not just the competition. The Saudis, if they do this normalization with Israel, the, the Saudis will indev- inevitably bring others with them, broader than we've seen before. We are very likely to see countries like uh, Indonesia and Malaysia follow suit if the Saudis do this. You are then talking about a much greater transformation of Muslim-majority countries making peace with Israel. Now, when you, make, you, you come up with that, you're going to do a great deal to change the character of the Middle East, reduce yep. the prospect of conflict in the Middle East, hugely in our interest. So I'm, I'm very strongly in favor of this. So here's an example. You have Yemen lobbing missiles into Saudi Arabia. Are we obligated to blow up Yemen? Well, you know, look, the, the agreement that we would have is that we, would, we will consult with them on the best ways to deal with the threats to them. We are not going to be obligated by the defense treaty to immediately go ahead and send American forces. And even with NATO, you know what Article 5 says? It, 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 Article 5 says an attack on one is an attack on all. What it obligates us to do is to consult on how best to respond. It is not an automatic use of American force. And it needs to be understood that's even in NATO you don't have that. This is going to look a lot more like uh, the treaties we have with South Korea and Japan. Uh, and here again, it requires us to consult with them on steps that we would take to, to deal with this, which may be just providing more assistance to them. When you uh, look at what's happening in the Ukraine, you can see a lot of the support for Ukraine for the Republicans. Uh, it's uh, diminishing almost by the week. What, what is your message? What is your message to those who think uh, this is an endless war? My message is you have one country that has tried to erase a different country. And if we permit that to take place, where does it stop? You know, you say we won't do it there. You know, where's the next place? At what point, especially when you have a country that's prepared to fight for itself? Ukraine reminds me in a lot of ways of the way the Israelis approach threats. The Israelis always say to us, we never want an American soldier to fight for us. Ukrainians are saying the same thing to us. You know, if we won't stand up for those who will fight for themselves when they're the ones who are the victims of a, a really gruesome, brutal, really criminal offensive invasion, then who are we? What is the United States? I agree. If, if you, but, we, we, just, I, but the thing is, uh, we're slow walking so many weapon systems while giving an exo- a lot of money and diminishing our artillery. That's the yeah. push. We're hurting our own. I believe it's a worthwhile cause. We're hurting our own cause by slow walking patriots, slow walking hallmarks, not deciding on attack waffling on F-16s, getting them 31 tanks and still not delivering one. When they need when we have hundreds, the Marines give up all their tanks. We have evidently huge stores of tanks in Germany in case Russia decides to roll through Western Europe. I'm pretty sure they're stuck in Ukraine. Why can't we get them out of there? That's the frustration. Either get in and let them win or not. 
Yeah. Look, I understand. I understood President Biden's desire not to get into a shooting war with the Russians. You know, you you should never put a nuclear sure. armed power in the corner. That's for, to me that makes perfect sense. But I would also say we have been more cautious than we needed to be. We should have. You, you find us. We say we're not going to buy certain weapons, and then eventually we do. I think we we need to be we need to be providing more and more quickly to them. It is a reminder we have to build up our own defense industrial base because, in fact, the ability to provide some of what we're talking about is difficult. It's true. In some cases, we have stores. Something else I would have liked to see us do, Brian. We have retired. You know, just at the beginning, not long after the beginning of the, the Russian invasion, we retired. I think at least 50 to 100 F-16s. We just retired them like into the desert. Imagine if you know those had been given over to the Ukrainians. You could probably get retired American pilots or NATO pilots to go fly them. They need them. You know, we look at their offensive. We would never carry out an offensive without never. We wouldn't do it. But we're asking them to succeed. So I, I agree with you. I would like to see us release much more of this much sooner. I understand the caution, but one of the things that's interesting to note, we haven't even seen an accident. We have this huge delivery of weapons coming through NATO countries that border Ukraine, right? Yep. And you don't, and has, has Putin respected that limit? He threatened, but he respects the limit because he understands he can't find NATO. Look, he's having a hard enough time fighting Ukraine. No, I, I hear you. And they've been exposed as an army that was way overrated and not motivated while their people are being lied to. Uh, but I wish we would do a better job tightening it up and threatening on the sanctions. Uh, I, I could barely, I barely scratched the surface and all the experience and knowledge that you have in a region. But it's so it's so valuable to our audience. Dennis Ross, thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Brian. You Take got care. it. 1-866-408-7669. I'm going to come back and I'll follow, bring some highlights back throughout this hour of what's happening with Merrick Garland. He's reading his opening remarks and he looks kind of fired up for a guy who's pretty laid back. Don't move. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I can assure you that Speaker McCarthy deserves all the criticism and more because it's his fault that we haven't considered individual appropriations bills up to this point. And that's actually not a bug of the system. It's a feature because they want to jam us at the end of the government running out of money. And then under that time pressure and the fear of a shutdown, centralize power so that the lobbyists and the special interests who own Kevin McCarthy who give him all the money, get to make the decisions. Now, today, I agreed with Chip Roy that we should have proceeded on to the defense appropriations bill. I would have voted for that bill. We were not able to proceed because some of my colleagues didn't feel like Kevin McCarthy was in compliance with the agreement in January to constrain himself to a top-line spending level that did not embrace the ballooning budgets of Bidenism and COVIDism. 
So uh, that is good that Matt Gates would have voted for it. What he's referring to is the continuing resolution that had a more funding for the defense and more funding for our border uh, and different things involved. And he said, OK, if you, well, I'll, I'll extend it if you could put this more money in. Now, keep in mind, they'll put their version to extend it and then it's up to the Senate's version and then they would mix. I don't have a good answer on why they didn't do their appropriations bills, which is regular order. And the Senate did. I, I don't have an answer for that. And maybe Gates is right, but I don't think it's because of special interests. I think you guys were, they were off all summer. And for some reason, they weren't close to agreement. I don't, in this, in this era of Zoom, and these people didn't even have to come to work for a year and a half. Nancy Pelosi said, so you don't have to worry about it. They could have got this stuff done in committee. And if I'm a committee chairman, I don't want the speaker telling me what to do. Give me some instruction and I'll just, I'll get you your appropriations bill. And if the Democrats don't want to get on a Zoom call, if you don't want to recall them back to D.C. or they got their Caribbean vacations. But now it's a lockout. And the Republicans are so we're heading there. Republicans are solely to blame for the fact there is a no answer. I think they got six days to get something done. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Do you feel like you were underestimated? You come here and it's, I don't know if Coach Prime can win. You must have heard what some of these other coaches were saying, both secretly and out loud. That's that's fear. Fear. Yeah, that's fear. That's like, hey, man, shoot, we don't want to let that engine that could get going because if that engine that could get going, he's going to start saying, I think I can, I think I can. And sooner or later, he's going to start saying, I know I can, I know I can. Then sooner or later, he's going to start saying, I did that. Uh, that is Deion Sanders talking to 60 Minutes on Sunday about his Colorado team. They beat Colorado State in double overtime. Hey, they were favored by 23. Uh, but they did beat Nebraska, and they beat uh, – uh, and they did also beat um, in their first game, TCU. So that team was playing for the national championship last year. And this is a Colorado team that won one game. He also turned around Jackson State, uh, a historical black college university, and brought new attention uh, as he decided – new attention to HBCUs. Uh, for the first time in a long time, since Grambling is one of the best teams putting uh, uh, consistently putting players into the pros. Joining us now is somebody who knows all that and more. He's uh, she's Sage Steele, former co uh, uh, former anchor at Sports Center, and so much, and done just about everything. Uh, Sage, welcome back. Hello, Brian. Thanks for having me. So the biggest story in sports, I believe, has to be Deion Sanders. Do you know that his game, Colorado? Got a 9.3 rating uh, over the weekend. So this guy sells, his team sells, people watch. They love the fact that his sons are playing, his, and, uh, his son's quarterback, and, and the whole story. Have you ever seen anything quite like this? It's incredible. It is really incredible, especially, I mean, there's so many factors when you think about how bad Colorado has been for the last, basically the last 20 years, haven't been super relevant for almost 30 years. So to see them come back just like this, this quickly in one season is nobody, none of the experts could have predicted this. The only thing I'll say, um, when the soundbite that you played coming into this, I was just sitting here smiling, listening to it again. I've heard it several times and seen it because I, I got the opportunity to cover Dion his last two years in the NFL. And it is just so Dion. And so as much as it's shocking as far as X's and O's and football, et cetera, it's also if anybody can do it, it's Dion. And it's just for those of us who had the opportunity to be around him, like you can't ever be surprised with him. He walks in to a team uh, with a program that's supported, but they don't win. 
And he says mm-hmm. to everyone, basically, uh, get into the portal. I'm bringing in my own guys. He's talking about like 80-plus people. Some didn't like that. Is that just the new Colorado? Is that the new college football landscape, and he's just seeing what the way it is right now? Yeah, I don't know that anybody's done it the way that Dion has done it, <laughs> essentially making it feel like, um, you know, hey, we're NFL team almost in cuts at the end of training camp. That's not usually how it's done. Um, I think that Dion is able to do what he does because he is Dion. Obviously, it's gonna, not going to sit well with a lot of people. And when you bring in your own guys, um, but here's the thing: right now, nobody's thinking about that because why? Because so far he has had the success. Now. We're going to see how much the success continues because the first three weeks, listen, Colorado State was a formidable opponent, much more so than Colorado thought, than anybody thought. Um, and what were the Buffs favored by 24 points? And so, hey, give those Rams a lot of credit. TCU, not the same TCU from a year ago. And Nebraska, obviously. The biggest test is coming this Saturday. And I think it's a 3.30 kick on ABC. And it's in Eugene, Oregon, against the number 10 Ducks. Like, this is what we're really going to see. Not just what the Buffaloes are about as a team, as, you know, you see you football, but I think most importantly, you're going to have to see how Dion coaches. He's proven he can coach at a couple of different levels now, right. but this is different. And now all the eyes of the entire, not just college football world, the sports world are on him against an incredible Heisman Trophy candidate quarterback. It's not just his quarterback. Shador's incredible, but Bo Nix. So we're going to really, really see what Dion is all about this Saturday in Eugene. Yeah, he's got two sons on the team, and, uh, and Shador is the quarterback. He evidently is being mentored by this guy named, how do you say it, Tom Brady? Uh, this is what he said <laughs> after the game. Evidently, they're in constant touch. Cut 45. What was your message to your teammates when you guys took over the ball at the two? At the two, all I was thinking was Brady mode. That's it. Simple. Brady mode? I'll Tom just Brady mode? Brady mode, that's it. You left too much time out there. He's been a mentor of yours? Yeah, of course. Yeah, we talk. We talk after every game. I'm sure he's going to text me in a second, but that's all I was thinking. It's Brady mode. If he could do it, I know I could do it. And, you know, we just alike. And he, had, he got the score, and they got the two-point conversion, forcing overtime, and then they win in double <laughs> overtime. How do you, what do you think about that? Okay, I love it. I love his confidence. And look at his dad. You would expect nothing less, right? I think the part about if Brady can do it, then I can do it. That's where I'm kind of like, okay, well, (laughs) are we fully comparing ourselves to Tom Brady at this point? Maybe. How cool would it be if he went on to have an incredible, you know, Hall of Fame career like Tom Brady did? Big picture. How cool is it that the GOAT, in my opinion, unquestionable, is taking the time to mentor Shador Sanders? And he's not the only young man that he mentors. Tom does a lot of things that nobody knows about. But I love it. And then Tom Brady responds on Twitter, too. So, I mean, not bad. And by the way, he's doing it wearing all of his gold chains. And I think Shador's making almost $4 million this year with NIL money. Uh, college football has changed. Uh, yes, it has. Uh, I think it does. But uh, I don't know if I, – I know that there's got to be some type of payment. I don't know if this is the best system. I would like to see some regulation. And I'm surprised, yeah. uh, Sage, how many people, how many coaches have said, yeah, regulate me. Because we need this is the Wild West right now. The NCAA threw up their hands. So now it's yeah. okay. I'll get, you know, you come here, I'll get you that car dealership deal. You don't really, you know. And the, there's so much well, room. And the for, rich get richer, right? Yeah. And and it, and it's very hard to compete. I mean, it, you, it's it's interesting. My dad, as you know, Brian played football at Army at West Point and um, Navy. Recently joined a conference. They're not independent anymore. And it's like, oh my goodness. What, what happens to some of those schools, right? The service academies. How about the Stanford's of the world, right? Like, can, their focus is academics. 
as it should be, which everybody says it is, but there's no way everybody can compete no with way. this type of system. And you might have big boosters and donors and all that, but um, nobody's going to, you know, the little guys are definitely being pushed out of this. And I do hope there is some regulation because it's, it's nuts. And it's hard because, yes, you want the kids to make that money. Um, it was not a good system the opposite way, but there's got to be a middle ground. And you don't want the beauty of this sport to be taken over just by greed and finances, although people would argue that it's already been close anyway. So I, I love what Dion does, his other philosophy of telling people the truth about how they're playing, including his own kids. Uh, and that came up on 60 Minutes. Here's what he said. Uh, cut 44. I think truth is good for kids. We're so busy lying, we don't even recognize the truth no more in, in society. We want everybody to feel good. That's not that's not the way life is. Now, it is my job to make sure I have what we need to win. That makes a lot of people feel good. Winning does. I, I got to push back on this. You're, you're a father of college Five. athletes. Yes. If they called you and say, hey, we got a new coach, and they're telling me to get in the transfer portal. I say, son, you must, be, you, you must not be doing well. That's what you'd you say. You must not be doing well because you should be an asset and not a liability. I'm honest with my kids. <laughs> I, I, it's hard to po- poke holes in that philosophy. I know. I love the honesty. He also talked about how he ranks his kids and who he loves more. And I guess those rankings tend to fluctuate. And you take him seriously in some ways and in other ways you don't, because I know that he loves all of his kids equally. But he, he is super honest. And that's why every time I hear these sound bites, and I was able to talk to him, oh, it's probably actually been seven or eight months when I had an interview on SportsCenter with him and Nick Saban at the same time. And Dion's just Dion. He's been doing this from day one. Really cool, though, when I think back to when he was a Baltimore Raven the last two years of his NFL career when he came back to play, Ray Lewis and all those guys, I mean, they were begging the Ravens to bring Dion in. Yes, because he could still play at 37 years old. You know, it was pretty impressive. But more importantly, because of what he does in the locker room and how he holds people accountable, teammates and coaches. And this is, what, almost 20 years ago. So it really said a lot to me at that time and now looking back that some of the greats to ever play with Ray Lewis and Ed Reed begged coaches to bring him in because they knew Dion would hold them accountable and be super honest. If they played like crap, Dion was going to let them know. And if they played great, he'd let them know as well. And, and that mean, is super yeah. important with coaching. And at 37, you're not keeping up with people like you used to doing the extraordinary things like you were. So you open yourself up. If you're critical of people, then you get beat. Then all of a sudden, they, well, look at you. So that t- I guess his he had a lot of, um, uh, I think he had a lot in his, his background that had him in the Hall of Fame already. So maybe he'd get a mulligan on that. So the other thing about Dion, which struck me, is when he played for the Yankees. So people yeah. all saw Neon Dion was all about him. Bo Jackson doing the same thing, but was kind of quiet. But what I always noticed about the Yankees, because I was, I was doing sports at that time, is they loved him. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a second. He's there part-time. He comes in, and Mattingly on down, go, what an asset he is. He's so great to have around. And I know this guy could not be anything but an outstanding teammate, for him to come in and be a part-time baseball players and be endorsed by the best players in the game at the number one, uh, the most high-profile franchise. And they just loved him. Everywhere he's been, they have absolutely loved him. And you go back even to his time at Florida State, when I don't think people remember he was football, he was baseball, and he was track. At one point, he played 
uh, a, like a playoff baseball game and then also went to run in some big-time track meet running the 4-by-100-meter dash in the same day. Everybody wanted him, not just because he was an incredible athlete that I don't know that kids today fully appreciate how good he was, but he really was a great teammate. And he brings the electricity. He brings the energy. Even when he was 37 in that Ravens locker room, he brought it. Like it was one of those things, Brian, where no matter what or how busy the day was, we all, and you've seen those media scrums in locker rooms. You sit there and you wait if it takes two hours for Dion to, Dion to come because when the microphone is in front of him, just buckle your seatbelt. And it's always entertainment. But, again, he, he, he helps people maintain perspective. That's what I noticed as well. And, and, actually, it came across in the quote when he was talking about the young man who put the big hit on his guy, Travis Hunter, um, in the game against Colorado State. And he's like, you know what? It's a game. It's football. And so as that poor young man is getting death threats, which has been really disgusting to see because it was, you know, it was a game and maybe he overdid it, but he was playing football, doing his thing. Um, so I love that Dion reminded people, stop with this kid. You know, this is a game. And that's how his perspective has always been a big picture thing, not just about, you know, the game and the sport and fame. And by the way, we mentioned earlier at the beginning about the Oregon game without Travis Hunter, who's an incredible two-way player for the Buffs. I mean, you've got Oregon this week, you have USC next week. That's a really, really big loss. So they would be tough games with Travis Hunter, but without him, uh, it's going to be tough. Absolutely. Just bring you to the NFL real quick. One of those moments where you always talk about when Marty Lyons was laying on top of the quarterback and a referee said he was giving him the business underneath. I think we got another one of those moments. It happened over the weekend with Geno Smith trying to talk to the referee after he was already broadcasting to the stadium. Cut 47. Attentional grounding. Offense number seven. It's a 10-yard penalty. I'm talking to America here. Excuse me. It's a 10-yard penalty and a loss of down. Second down. That is the best line I've ever heard, Adam Fisher. We'll get to the penalty in a minute. He just told Geno Smith I'm talking to America. So how cool is that? I, I I actually love – I mean, I always think about those officials, and that's nerve-wracking to have to push that button on your microphone and speak to 80,000 people as well as millions watching on TV. And I don't think we give them enough credit for being – hey, they, they can maybe do our jobs, Brian, right? When the big lights are on, they don't flinch. And for him to come up with that line in the middle of it, I loved it. And I do love Geno Smith, by the way. Give him the business. you got to do it as a quarterback. And then if people ever wonder – uh, how serious this game is. I'm watching uh, Nick Chubb, and they were talking about how good he is oh. in proportion to all-time greats. And he's playing, of course, against the Steelers, uh, and he has a devastating knee injury. It was too it was too gruesome even to play back again. But here's how yeah. it sounded. Cut 46. Here's Chubb trying to pick his way inside the five, and he does. Knocked down at the three. And the last thing any Browns fan wants to see, Nick Chubb holding his left leg. Oh, boy. I am told that the replay of Nick Chubb getting injured is not to be seen. Yeah, it's we're not going to show it. It's uh, it's it's as bad as you can imagine. He's out for the year, but if people ever say, "Wow, why do these guys get paid so much?" Well, that's why. At any moment, not only could they be knocked out, uh, they could be in excruciating pain and maybe laid up forever. Yeah, I, you know, it's yet another reminder. And at the end of the day, I, as brutal as it is, I don't know that we should be surprised because of the brutality of the game. And just when you look at the last 20, 30 years and how different the hits are, right, 
it's just his heart. It's always heartbreaking, but in particular with Nick Chubb in 2015, he completely blew out uh, that same knee and I think three different ligaments, and it was a disaster. And the fact that he came back at this level was really miraculous. And now you look at it again on the same knee, it's heartbreaking. I think also if you if you take a look at all the reaction from around the sports world, he's beloved, good, good, good player, better person. And I think maybe that's the only, only the silver lining of something like this. And as well as the week before mm-hmm. when Aaron Rodgers went down is that you put everything else aside, kind of like the Dion thing, you have perspective and you look at the human element of this um, and it's heartbreaking. And you pray for Nick, you pray for Aaron and all these guys who are putting it out there every single day. It is a part of the game, but I do love that at the end, um, look at how even the Steelers fans treated him. You know, there's bigger, more important things. And I think honestly, Brian, and you and I, you and I met a month or so ago there at the Fox Studios. I mean, what I this is why I wanted to be a sportscaster because what it does is it brings people together, and terrible moments like that can actually bring people together. And I think it definitely will for the Cleveland Browns. And and again, just to play your game, guys, but remember the human mm-hmm. element of this. Absolutely. And lastly, USFL XFL going to merge. What do you think? More football. <laughs> why not? <laughs> they need a triple A football product. I absolutely love that XFL product, and the USFL obviously has the history. But it should be like a year-round sport, don't you think? Why not? Uh, <laughs> just some place for, for other people to play. That East Stroudsburg State slow to mature defensive lineman now at 25, has a couple of years uh, of professional football. Now he's ready to shine for the Packers. So I, I love it. The right? same I mean, thing baseball so many, players That's has. the thing. There's so many great opportunities to tell more stories. Every right. one of these athletes, especially XFL and USFL, who, whose dream is obviously to get to the NFL, but they all have a story. And I, I hope right. that you know the journalists out there can take advantage of that. And again, sports brings people together, tell their stories. Got it. And Sage, you do it like nobody else. Sage Steele, thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Brian. Talk to you soon. You got it. Back in a moment, Brian Kilmeade Show. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Have you had personal contact with anyone at FBI headquarters about the Hunter Biden investigation? I don't, I don't recollect the answer to that question, but the FBI works for the Justice Department. It's, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You don't support. recollect. You don't recollect whether you've talked with anybody at FBI headquarters about an investigation of the president's son. I, I don't believe that I did. I promised the Senate when I came um, before it for confirmation that I would leave Mr. Weiss in place and that I would not interfere with his investigation. Not that we all would know this, but Weiss in place, just because Trump put him there, basically Delaware recommends the uh, the, uh, the district attorney to stay there. So uh, David Weiss has been a remarkable failure. And Merrick Garland, obviously when he says, I don't recall, gets away with not answering the question because clearly he talked to the FBI about the case. Why wouldn't he? He could say, well, I had an innocuous conversation, but of course the people would run with that. So Merrick Garland's getting his uh, butt kissed by Democrats, and he's not answering questions from Republicans, but it is getting very intense, and we'll have the latest, so keep it here. Um, This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Go to, don't forget, uh, you could go to briankilmeade.com, find out how to see me on stage, including uh, on November 9th uh, in New Jersey, and of course I'll be in Alabama, Montgomery, Alabama after that, uh, and I'll be in Pittsburgh just about everywhere. 
From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. So interesting. My next guest is all about China, and their uh, Matt Gates is now asking about China. And why did you get rid of Merrick Garland, the China Initiative, that was able to lasso not people in China, but people helping China, like a Harvard professor and others that were there uh, pushing China's agenda in various schools and colleges, which they were paying for insidiously. Now we find they were actually in grammar school. There's Confucius Institutes. They're buying up farmland. To me, the China Initiative was brilliantly done. It unearthed a big spy network over in Houston. You remember that? Uh, and now Merrick Garland's saying, well, I have no idea. I had no idea about the shell companies that may or may not have compromised uh, President Biden when he was vice president. Biden uh, was not up to me to look into it. A lot of I don't knows and I don't understand. Uh, Steve Mosher joins us now. And by the way, thanks so much for being here. Bottom of the hour, Martha McCallum will tie up. And the reason I'm referring to this is we've been waiting for Merrick Garland to go on Capitol Hill for the longest time. And now he's in front of the Judiciary Committee trying to justify what he's done with David Weiss and the attorney, the, uh, the district attorney there. And the five-year investigation on Hunter Biden that almost got, resulted in a ridiculously lenient uh, plea deal until it was exposed by a clear-thinking judge. Steve Mosher, president of the Population Research Institute, best-selling author on Bully of Asia, why China's dream and the threat to uh, is the new threat to world order and the politically incorrect guide to pandemics. Steve, welcome back. Good to be here, Brian. Steve, do you do you wonder? Uh, do you think the Republicans are wrong to wonder if, in many ways, the president's compromised when it comes to his policy on China? Who he continues to say we don't want to decouple, we want to de-risk. Are they wrong to feel that there's something going on there? No, I don't think so. I think there's a lot of evidence the Chinese Communist Party engages in what's called elite capture. And I think that one of the elites they have captured uh, is a member, or if not the entire uh, Biden crime family. Uh, I mean, clearly they've been in business with the Chinese Communist Party, in fact, with the intelligence services of the Chinese Communist Party now for many, many years through Burisma and through other connections. So I think the evidence is clear. And I'm really, really tired, Brian, of the ongoing cover-up, the ongoing refusal of uh, there must be some there must be some Democrats out there with with uh, enough integrity to say uh, this guy is compromised. Um, It's time for him to go. So we're looking at the world stage and China, again, does not send uh, their president Xi here, does not even send their foreign minister here. Uh, they send their vice president, which is like a ceremonial position. Russia, Vladimir Putin says, well, I'll probably be arrested. We probably wouldn't come anyway. Is the world dividing right now? North Korea goes to visit China, uh, goes to visit Russia. China goes to visit Russia. Uh, you know, you see the BRIC alliance coming together with uh, Brazil, uh, with India, which I imagine would be in our in our ballpark. With, with the BRIC alliance, you also have uh, China and Russia Are we, and, and Iran uh, in the enemy camp. Are we dividing? Absolutely. The world is divided into opposing camps. I feel like I'm back in the 50s or 60s, Brian, because we faced in those days the Sino-Soviet bloc, right? China and Russia together under the Soviet Union with the Soviet Union the leading partner. Now we've got China and Russia back together 
with China the leading partner, and, and I must say that's even more worrisome to me as a China expert, uh, given what China is capable of, uh, than the old Sino-Soviet alliance was. It was our policy for decades to try to keep those two great Eurasian land powers separate. And Kissinger did that, you know, in the early 1970s, drove a wedge between the two of them. Unfortunately, we have now inadvertently allowed that alliance to reforge itself. And, and it's a danger uh, to, to not just Taiwan, to not just China's immediate neighbors, but to the world at large. And I'll talk to you about China and what you've discovered about their economic uh, reality. Uh, but I want you to hear what President Biden said yesterday on the U.N. floor. Cut three. When it comes to China, I want to be clear and consistent. We seek to responsibly manage the competition between our countries so it does not tip into conflict. I've said we are for de-risking, not decoupling with China. We will push back on aggression and intimidation and defend the rules of the road, from freedom of navigation to overflight to level economic playing field that have helped safeguard security and prosperity for decades. How do you feel that? How does China digest that tone? Well, China regards that as a form of uh, unilateral surrender on the part of the United States because the fact of the matter is, Brian, that Deng Xiaoping back in 1992, a long time ago now, 31 years, declared that the old Cold War was over, the Soviet Union had lost, America was won, had won, and he declared there was a new Cold War starting between China and the United States, and China was determined to win. I think if you view our relationship with China through that lens, you understand that China's been at war with us across all dimensions except the kinetic for the last 30 years, stealing our intellectual property, uh, taking advantage of the openness of our markets to flood us with cheap goods and put American workers out of work, and, and all of the other shenanigans that have been going on around the world. So they're in a kind of unrestricted, what they call unrestricted warfare against the United States, trying to weaken us in every possible way. So you can't just you can't talk about de-risking a relationship with the Chinese Communist Party that wants to eliminate you, to replace you as the dominant right. power on the planet. It's simply naive. It is, and they take it as weakness. Uh, and But the thing is now is the column you wrote on Sunday really struck me in the New York Post. And you talked about uh, uh, China and the reality that they're facing economically and their future with their one-child policy and their real estate market that's collapsing and the population that's diminishing. Can you set the table for for our listeners that don't study it like you study it? What have you discovered about their trends? Well, and the big picture is that communism always collapses eventually from its internal contradictions. And we see that happening in real time in China today. The official corruption, my goodness, half of the, the Central Military Commission is now under investigation for corruption because all the generals are on the take. The mismanagement of the economy, you're building these ghost cities, these ghost apartment buildings that are unoccupied. They add to the GDP when you build them. They add to the GDP when you destroy them and, and, and blast them back into rubble, which is happening in real time in China. Uh, then you got the crushing of creativity and innovation. Why innovate anything in China when you can just steal it from the United States? Uh, control is everywhere. Xi Jinping wants to be big brother everywhere and always. Uh, rec recklessly escalating debt. I mean, they're spending a trillion dollars around the world in this Belt and Road Initiative. A lot of those projects will never pay for themselves and just increase China's debt, which is two or three times uh, that what America's debt is. Uh, the destruction of the environment, you know, the water in China, the groundwater in China, 80 or 90 percent of it is undrinkable. The air in big cities is unbreathable. Uh, the, economic, the environmental destruction is just enormous. Building a coal-fired power plant every two weeks. 
Um, all of those factors, you know, play into the coming collapse of China. Uh, the real estate market's already there. I mean, the biggest uh, developer in China, Evergrande, is now uh, teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. And, and buyers are furious because you pay for an apartment in China before it's built. What happens when you, the buyer, pay for an apartment that never gets built because the company goes bankrupt? There's a lot of anger in China today. But but I think the biggest problem, Brian, is the wanton destruction of human capital. I mean, if you kill off $400 million of the last most productive, enterprising, hardworking people on the planet, which is what the Chinese Communist Party has done over the last 40 years, uh, that can only bring the collapse closer. And uh, we see that now with the aging and dying of China's population. China is now no, not the no longer the most populous country in the world. India is. China's, China's population is aging and dying very rapidly. And uh, what's going to happen in the future is, you know, the young people who would have driven the economy forward, who would have innovated, who would have started new businesses, uh, they were killed uh, in utero or after birth, especially if they were little girls, of course. Female infanticide is a major problem. So you've got so few young women in China now because of female infanticide, sex selection, abortion, that even if the Chinese Communist Party wanted to, there's no way to turn around uh, this, this demographic collapse that's coming. Uh, and I think Xi Jinping now knows that. He's ordered the military, in fact, to start having three children, Brian. Isn't that interesting? Right. All young military members are supposed to get married and have three children. We'll see if they follow orders. Yeah, and, you know, he's he's just consolidating power, wiping out any of the free market principles that could help uh, drive manufacturing and innovation, even though they were never known as great innovators. They're great thieves. Uh, so Congressman Mike Rogers weighed in yesterday on the fact is we've been slow walking or unable to get Taiwan the weapon systems that they've paid for already because of production issues. Look at So the, our goal is to make them a porcupine, make them almost impossible to attack and be successful. Listen to what Roger says yesterday as chairman of Armed Services Committee, Cup 5. It authorized $1 billion annually in presidential drawdown authority for Taiwan, $2 billion annually in voluntary military, military fi- uh, financing loans, and $100 million to begin stockpiling U.S. equipment on the island. But more needs to be done. To date, the administration has only announced $345 million in drawdown authority, uh, they have not budgeted, and Congress has not appropriated the funding necessary to fully carry out the authorities provided in last year's NDAA. In foreign military sales, the program we've primarily relied on to provide military aid to Taiwan is clearly broken. So we can't get it to there ahead of time, and time is ticking on their side. You'd think they might act sooner than later to try to deflect people, get people's mind off their, off their economic situation. Oh, absolutely. I think they see we have a weak and feckless American president. I think they see we've depleted our munitions stockpiles by sending lots of arms to to Ukraine. Uh, we're being outproduced by Russian artillery shells two to one. It's just incredible how how uh, our, our munitions industry has fallen upon hard times. So China could invade Taiwan today, but it certainly will, I think, make some move against Taiwan while Joe Biden is in office. I think the the big window of opportunity for them, so to speak, would be next spring when the waters of the Taiwan Strait are fairly calm and you could get a pretty good invading force across the uh, 90-mile-wide Taiwan Strait. So next look for next uh, March, April, May, June, before the hurricane season, after the winter storms. You know, I was a naval officer. I transited the Taiwan Strait several times. Uh, you can't get an invading fleet across there in the middle of typhoon season. So there's a window. I think we ought to be 
you know, arming Taiwan as quickly as we can before next spring. And let me say this. I, I was in China in 1980 when Jimmy Carter unilaterally abrogated, ended the 1955 Mutual Defense Treaty with the Republic of China on Taiwan. He just, he just terminated it without the consent of the Senate. It was, in, uh, it was in litigation for a long time. I think it needs to be reinstituted. I think that uh, it's time to make Taiwan off limits and commit the full retaliatory power of the United States for its defense. You mean recognize uh, uh, Taiwan is the true China? Well, recognize, have a mutual defense uh, treaty with Taiwan uh, to bring Japan and South Korea into its defense and and make Taiwan, um, you know, unattackable, uh, raise the stakes so high that China will not attack. And make no mistake, Xi Jinping has built up a huge military force. And the the things he's using, though, you you sort of use them or lose them, right, because they become outdated, outmoded, obsolete over time. He's in economic crises. He may be in political crises. He's decapitating the leadership of the foreign ministry. He's replacing generals left, right, and center in the People's Liberation Army. So he may want a distraction. He may want a foreign adventure at this time to take the minds of the Chinese people and the Communist Party leaders off his own failures. So, yeah, I think we're in in very, very dangerous waters right now. Wow. Uh, It's uh, very fascinating to hear this. Steve Mosher, the president of the Population Research Group, best-selling author, A Bully of Asia. Thanks so much, Steve. Thank you. All right. When we come back, Martha McCallum joins us, and we'll have the latest from uh, the Capitol Hill testimonies in front of the Judiciary Committee. We finally have Merrick Garland speaking, but what's he saying? We'll find out when we return. It's Brian Kilmeade. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I guess I'm just wondering, Mr. Attorney General, has anyone at the department told President Biden to knock it off with Hunter? I mean, you guys are charging Hunter Biden on some crimes, investigating him on, on others. You've got the president bringing Hunter Biden around to state dinners. Has anyone told him to knock it off? Our job in the Justice Department is to pursue our cases without reference uh, to what's happening in the outside world. Just yes or no, have you done that? That is what we do. So it's a no? No one that I know of has spoken to the White House about the Hunter Biden case. I'm wondering then. Of course not. Okay. So Matt Gaetz actually had some very good – it doesn't surprise me. He's good at this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Matt Gaetz, very direct questions from Eric Carl, and he has no interest in answering them. In fact, he has interest in filibustering. And one of which he said, why did you get rid of the Chinese initiative? He said, you know, what were you what was the point of getting rid of the Chinese initiative? How could that be better? He goes, well, we broadened it out. We wanted to look at the threat among others uh, besides China, like North Korea and others. And then he was able to answer, are you telling me that you think North Korea was the same threat as China? And then he wanted some long, elaborate description. So Merrick Owen is not playing ball. No, he's not. Um, he's made it clear that he's, you know, that's his story and he's sticking with it in terms of the interference or coordination over anything with regard to Hunter Biden and the investigation. He just continues to say that David Weiss had no interference. And David Weiss wrote that in three letters, which has been entered in, as evidence in here. So you've got David Weiss's word against the IRS whistleblower's words, essentially. And everyone watched that testimony as well, where they said and even noted at the time, um, during the meeting that uh, Weiss indicated that he wasn't the top voice on this and that it was it, he was not going to be able to pursue it in two other So unless courts. you get them all in the same room. Yeah, that would be helpful, right? 
But I guess it's not going to happen. Are we going to hear from David Weiss in the meantime? He's just going to say it's not true and contemporaneous notes don't really matter because that's not the way, that's not what happened. I guess that's the main thing. Yeah, one of the things that um, you know I think is interesting about the conversation over David Weiss, and I'd love for one of them to press harder on this, is this question about why he was made special counsel. And I didn't hear anyone ask, and I just did something with the Business Channel, um, so I might have missed it. But I didn't hear anyone ask. You know, He said, well, I made David Weiss special counsel because he asked for it. And before that, he didn't ask for it. I told him I would do whatever he needed. So when he asked for it, I, I made a special counsel. Like when you thought it was required to have a special counsel, did it occur to you that maybe you ought to choose someone fresh and from the outside? What was the process? Uh, exactly. Right? And because he doesn't have credibility. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's like he has been around that case for too long, five years, as as was asked. I think it was um, Gallagher that asked, you know, what? why does it take five years to figure out that somebody hasn't filled out a form uh, correctly or they lied on the form? And, you know, that was, oh, well, I, I just haven't paid any attention to any of it because it's not really my thing. So this whole thing about the impeachment inquiry, there's no there there. That seems to be what the Democrats are saying but on any on any way you look at it, there's a lot there to inquire about. Whether you think it's impeachable, that's up for that's up for grabs. But to me, there's no reason for an impeachment inquiry if people are being forthcoming and forthright and uh, and about the document requests, whether it's the National Archives, five thousand four hundred with the pseudonames, or whether it's uh, whether it's the Biden administration, they have to go out and forensically go to these banks and say. Do you have any companies here? Do you have any companies? They found the 20 banks. They found the interaction. They found the $20 million. They don't know where the $20 million is. They don't know what David Weiss is up to. So they have to do a parallel investigation. So for for Comer, he's going to be all ears here, but he is full speed ahead on the impeachment side. Well, there's no doubt that they uncovered evidence that had not been uncovered before, that we now have a better sense of all these shell companies, the millions of dollars, where it all went. All of that. So, you know, I I understand the reluctance on the part of some people to not want to pursue yet another impeachment in the United States. However, if if if, I think if there was a confidence level that DOJ was functioning as it should on this matter, people wouldn't see the need to want Congress to pick up the slack and to dig deeper on these things and to figure out where it goes. And as you say, I think people just assume an inquiry leads to an impeachment. I hope that we still live in an environment where that's not necessarily so. If they don't find a connection that they would drop it. Hey, because there's not, they don't have the votes for an impeachment anyway, unless something crazy comes That's right. Don't move. From his mouth to, to your, your ears, ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. How hard has it been on the Ukrainians because it seems like we are always late. First and foremost, uh, assistance is needed, and it's positive that the assistance is being given. I'm always saying, well, we need to appreciate that, because without the military support, especially with modern equipment, Ukraine would not be able to defend itself. The problem that Ukrainians are facing is not only the so-called military techniques or technology, simply said weapons. There is also another thing. Russia simply is, Russians are much more numerous than Ukrainians. Yeah, uh, that was the president of Poland that was in here a short time ago, Martha McCallum, and he was talking about how they understand the threat, uh, and he doesn't really believe Germany does, and they don't see it that way in France, but they do in Poland. They've taken a million refugees. They've now doubled their GDP on defense. It's at 4% above ours in percentage, 
and they worry about Belarus too. And they're also dealing the best they can with the Ukraine. They're the first one to give them uh, fighter jets, and they've been monitoring the situation. But the Russians are very dig- dug in from what they have now. But they need jets, and they need they need demining equipment. He said Zelensky's been on us to get him demining equipment, and we're scouring our whole country for it. We got a ton of it. Yeah. And we, what are they called? Miklicks or whatever. They go out into there, and and there's a way to beat this, and that's really what it is. The thing that's stopping the advance of the counteroffensive is the mines that was laid in the winter. Yeah. You know, um, I always go back to the way of interpreting this of our government, which we're with you as long as it takes, which is something that I think really grates on the Ukrainian leadership because they don't want it to take as long as it takes. So it feels as though we've been giving them. You know, everything we said we weren't going to give them, eventually we do. Now we are training pilots, right, for the for the eventuality that jets will come into the picture. Uh, Jackie Heinrich reported earlier today that they're not going to get the long-range missiles that Zelensky was hoping to go home with. The from the meeting. At, yeah, the attackums. Um, was hoping to go back home after his meeting at the White House with a commitment to that. Apparently that's not going to happen. So you just have to... You know, it's kind of you have to decide, are are you in it to win it because you want this to conclude quickly, because you want an overwhelming power situation that makes the Russians feel that this is not going to happen? Obviously, Putin decided that he wanted to go further than the ongoing battle that was happening in, D- in Donetsk and Luhansk, right, that he felt like this was the moment to push into the country. And I think he anticipated exactly what's happening, which is that the commitment might be yeah. there, but it would, you know, would be. They would be very concerned about escalation in the White House. And, of course, that's a legitimate concern. Nobody wants a nuclear war, God forbid, and nobody wants to see this escalate. But, you know, I, I do think either either you say no, you know, you're on your own, or you say we want – we have a goal of victory for you. We want you to reclaim your country and we'll provide what it takes. Right. That would be great. Uh, obviously, Russia knows if they start a nuclear war, they will not survive it. I don't know who would survive it, but you have every NATO country. Now you have 30 thoroughly surrounding you. I don't think they've rejected this pushback, but that's the theme of the U.N. I also talked to the general secretary of NATO and the same thing. He's making sure that people understand the commitment, but he's not condemning because he's basically a diplomat. Hungary's giving almost nothing. You know, those smaller countries are giving almost nothing. Turkey's giving almost nothing. And Germany hasn't done fulfilled their pledges. And France is leveling off. Only nine of 30 countries are fulfilling their pledge of the 2% on GDP. So we'll see where this goes. I know most Republicans, you know, most Republicans don't want to fund this. I just watched Byron Donalds and says, well, you know, they want you to fund the $24 billion for Ukraine. He goes, no, not a good time. So how many Well, it would be nice to see to? Europe step up. I mean, it is in their backyard and they should be doing more. Uh, They are much more in the line of threat than the United States is at this point. We have a strong commitment to defend NATO countries. So, you know, I I understand the debate. I I understand that um, I I think it's a legitimate debate. Right. I know. um, So I know Nikki Haley said it's your debate that, you know, they have stepped up. So EU has given twenty nine billion. We've given. Forty-six billion uh, with equipment and money. Germany eight. That's a huge drop off. Uh, the UK said just to break down the European Union, uh, seven point one for the UK. Uh, Poland three point two. Then the Netherlands two point seven. Finland one point two. Let's see if Sweden get in. I also said to them, look at Hungary and Turkey don't want Sweden in NATO. 
Why? And why don't we get rid of Turkey and, uh, and Hungary and keep Sweden? Yeah. That country ready to go. What are we talking about? They are about? ready to go. They're willing to make a huge commitment, yeah. and they have a stronger military than most of the surrounding countries. Um, yeah, I mean, m- maybe that's a trade-off that should be considered. Yeah, I might do that. Uh, so we're watching some of this now, and Merrick Garland's being engaged by uh, Daryl Issa. We'll bring back some of that shortly. He's already been engaged by Jim Jordan, who haven't opened up comments. And you heard the instant analysis by Jonathan Turley in the break, Martha. He says this is bringing up more questions. That answers. And he did say that we'll know about justice. We can judge it after David Weiss hands in his report. And if you look at the timing, that could be after the election. You know what? I think a lot of these things could be after the election. That report could be after the election. I wouldn't be surprised if you don't see any uh, Trump cases actually go to court until after the election. Would you? I'd be shocked at that. I would be surprised, actually. I would not be surprised if because they're working very hard to throw barriers in front of this with questions about whether or not Trump um, a president. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think they may be successful. We'll see what happens on that. But we, we may be in a situation where we don't see these situations adjudicated until after the election. I would think the one question that like, why did you pick Jack Smith? Out of all the guys, you bring this guy back from The Hague with he blew the Menendez case. He blew the John Edwards case. He blew the uh, uh, Bob McDonald case. Well, why him? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and my question that you and I talked about was why David Weiss for special counsel? And he talked about, well, I told David Weiss, Garland said, I'd give him whatever he needed and I was going to keep this whole thing at, at an arm's distance. I wasn't going to be involved in it at all. And I told him he'd have what he needed. So he asked to be special counsel three months ago. And so I gave, so I said yes. And at that point, I would have said to him, but excuse me, sir, once you – once you agreed that a special counsel was merited in this case, why didn't you look elsewhere, given the history? Wouldn't it have why kept you at guy? arm's length even more to say, OK, if you think you need a special counsel, let's do this. Let's have it not be you. Let's bring in someone from the outside who has not already had so much um, – so many been so bogged down with baggage in this case already. So, uh, Allison, do you have that first cut when he was asked about the FBI? Have you spoken to the FBI about that? Yeah. You, you played it already. Um, That's a good one. Yeah. Can we hear that? Have you had personal contact with anyone at FBI headquarters about the Hunter Biden investigation? Don't re- I don't I don't recollect the answer to that question, but the FBI works for the Justice Department. It's uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You don't part. recollect. You don't recollect whether you've talked with anybody at FBI headquarters about an investigation of the president's son? I, I don't believe that I did. I promised the Senate when I came um, before it for confirmation that I would leave Mr. Weiss in place and that I would not interfere with his investigation. On July 10, 2023, U.S. Attorney David Weiss told Senator Lindsey Graham, quote, I had discussions with departmental officials regarding potential appointment under 28 U.S.C. Uh, Section 515 which would have allowed me to file charges in a district outside my own without the partnership of the local U.S. attorney, end quote. With whom did Mr. Weiss have those discussions? I'm not going to get into the internal deliberations of the department. Um, Oh, but you must, sir. This is important for us. We have oversight responsibility over your department, and we need these answers. Under oath today, your testimony is you have not had any discussions with Mr. Weiss about this matter? Under oath, my testimony today is that I promised that the, uh, the Senate I would not um, intrude in his investigation. I do not intend to discuss the deliber- internal Justice Department uh, deliberations, whether or not I had them. 
Are you aware that FBI officials have come before this committee and they have stated that there was a cumbersome bureaucratic process that Mr. Weiss had to go through to bring charges in another judicial district? You know that? I'm not aware, but that's not true. There's nothing cumbersome about the process. So those whistleblowers are lying to us under oath? They're, those whistleblowers are lying? I didn't say that. Their, their description of the process, cumbersome, is an opinion. It's not a fact question. So that's a little of the exchange. What do you think, Martha? What's your assessment of that? Well, I, I love the moment when he says, uh, oh, yes, you do. You are. This is an oversight hearing. Yeah. And we do have oversight, the Judiciary Committee, over the Department of Justice. So the answer should be, you know, I, if anything, I don't want to answer that in an open forum. I'd be happy to meet with you about that afterwards and explain. Also, he said Garland said that he wasn't aware that the whistleblowers uh, stated that 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 it was a cumbersome process. So he he didn't watch any of what they said. And it's what not true. The, my follow up question: You know, how could you not be aware of what was said? Why wouldn't you want to know uh, what's going on in in, your, in one of your departments? But what do you say, Martha? When you don't when you know you met with the FBI about it, you say, I don't know, I don't remember. I have a lot of meetings. No, I I mean he. I would expect him to be honest. And if if the truth is that he met with them but didn't, you know, didn't rein them in, didn't give them any direction about what they had to do in that case, then he should say that. But he needs to be forthcoming. How about this? Was, when has it taken five years to investigate a gun case? He was asked that. Right. Yeah. And I he mean, said, he, I don't get oh, it to judgment. I, I just didn't do anything. I, you know, I'm not involved in any way. And, and how about the question – um, were you aware that they allowed the statute of limitations to run out in these cases? Nope, nope, not aware of that either. Well, who's going to be on your show? So we're going to talk to Mark Levin uh, about what happened in these Garland hearings. We're also going to talk to Brett Baer, who is in the middle of or might have just wrapped a really what I know will be a fascinating interview with MBS, uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Obviously, there's a lot going on with oil prices, a lot going on with alliances in the Middle East. So we look forward to hearing what comes out of that interview. Yeah, one of which is the big news is going in anyway, was Saudi Arabia is asking for a mutual mutual defense pa- a defense package with us. So we'll see what that means. Yeah, we saw so much realignment at the end of the Trump administration with the Abraham Accords and the possibility that Saudi Arabia and Israel yeah. might actually get together and align on some things. And all of that, of course, was dashed at the end of that administration. So we'll see where it goes. Right. Uh, Martha's not moving. We're going to maybe bring back some more cuts and then hear more from the president of Poland. I asked him, uh, I asked him about the aid and the speed in which he's got it and getting more military support. A lot of people here, and Martha knows it too, are not for giving any more aid to Ukraine. I think that'll be a big mistake. Want even more, Brian? Download the podcast at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Every episode, exclusive interviews on demand. More of Kilmeade coming up. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Have you expressed that to President Biden that, you know, they need F-15s, they need more tanks, 31 is not enough? Yesterday, I said to President Biden, because we had an opportunity to see each other during a reception um, given here at New York by uh, Mr. President on the occasion of the UN General Assembly, uh, traditionally, I said I, I ask very much to provide further support to Ukraine to supply armaments to Ukraine, because that is of key importance to stop Russian imperialism. And I appeal to everyone. I also 
asked President Biden to do the same, to use this opportunity. This opportunity is being used precisely through supporting Ukraine. We are starting sending armaments to Ukraine. We are helping Ukrainians to defend their homeland. So he wants more armaments. He sees it right there. Martha, it, and you could appreciate this because you did so much work on World War II. It's, it's if the people of Poland think the World War just ended two days ago. They are so aware of a of a ambitious, uh, uh, imperialistic Russia that they are all motivated. He's like, when I decided to double the GDP, they're all they're all aboard. So they get it and they're ready to go and they're watching everything like a hawk and they feel it's almost as if it's their war because they think they would be next. He also talked about uh, having a, con- a conversation with the previous president and he says, if we don't do anything after Georgia. You just watch the coming after Ukraine. And a couple of years later, they did. I mean, you can see you can see why they feel this way. And you look at the encroachment in Georgia. Look at Crimea, after which nothing was done on the part of the world powers, really, in Europe or here. And then you looked at the battles that were going on in uh, Duhansk and, and in Luhansk and Jeanette and Luhansk and Jeanette, right? Yeah. Um, in that area, in the eastern part of the country. So they've watched this slow boil. They've watched Russia take territory away from Ukraine. And Poland understands the impact of war probably like no other country, really, in that part of Europe. I mean, they have been sliced and diced by different Literally. empires over centuries. Austria has as well. So. They understand it. It's palpable for them. I don't understand why these other countries in Europe don't feel it the way that Poland does, just because they're slightly further away. Um, The other interesting thing is, uh, you know, you have to watch these alliances with North Korea and China and Russia, right? And you can imagine, speaking of World War II, a scenario where they, they decide to take territory sort of simultaneously or make moves simultaneously. And I think that that's a fear. I read a piece yesterday in Rand uh, of publications about that. And I think that um, I think that's something we have to be very, very aware of. You have to always be looking to the next move for these countries. Where are they going next and what do we need to do to protect people? Right. Uh, no doubt about it. I mean, they could be looking to do that. Uh, we are far superior with our alliances, our alert. Australia is motivated. Vietnam says, hey, I'm here for you. We're, we're seeing that Japan is beginning to spend more money on their defense. We know when they want to fight, they certainly can fight. And then in Western Europe, we never would have gotten rid of Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 if it wasn't for this this wake-up call that they all got. So my hope is there will be investment and people would understand it. I fear that this administration isn't up for it. There's no indication that they're up for any type of challenge. When they don't even admit that China is a competitor, we just want to de-risk, not decouple. And what planet is that okay? The language was very soft from the president yesterday at the U.N. No no matter how you look at it. I mean, you know, whatever side of the political fence you're on, you would acknowledge that that language was very soft. It's um, an indication that he wants to de-escalate the conversation with China. That's the choice that this administration is making. Whether or not that's going to be effective, I I mean, I think you, you see the evidence on the ground, right? You see what's happening in the streets of Taiwan. You see China. China's muscular military exercises that are going on in that area. You see them testing, 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 right, all the time. And you see what Russia has done. So the current posture is not containing 
any of this. And I don't know why the president of the United States stands up in front of the world and says, we're not interested in containing China. That's not why we're building these alliances with Australia and Japan. I I don't understand why there's a moment for speaking on the world stage in a forceful, peaceful way that was not taken opportunity. Last last question. We only have a minute or so left. This whole shutdown that seems like it's going to happen, to see those five Republicans, to me, stand up after Chip Roy, Scott Perry, and the Speaker, and Mike Johnson, work through the weekend and say, listen, this is what we need to see. This is additional funding. We still got to work with the Senate. And to see five Republicans go, no, no, I don't want any of this. I mean, what are, what are you talking about? I mean, they know that now you have to turn it over to the Democrats who now are going to cut a deal with moderates and they're going to hate everything about the CR. And you're trying to hold on to the House and convince the American people you're, you're ready to ready to work. Are you ready to work? It's a difficult picture. Uh, very divided. I mean, we all remember what Kevin McCarthy went through just on the vote just to be the speaker. Right. So it's not shocking that this is happening. I do think that there's a hunger in the country for some fiscal responsibility. And I think people don't understand why it always comes down to this. Right. Uh, I think that if it was the deal, like the omnibus would be a problem. But to get us to October 31st, it's always, it's always right. that way. Kick watch it down it, the road. Watch it three. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.